0: Um, So the second reading is from the first book of Corinthians, uh, chapter 15, and we'll read from verses 1 to 19, and in this pew Bible, that's on page 1205. Now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then then it was I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Thanks be to God for his word.
1: Well, it's very fitting that we remember Remembrance Day today because we'll be talking about some things that can be remembered. And so one of them, we remember remember Remembrance Day the 11th of November each year, uh, of sacrifice, of loss, of things that happened in the past. I wasn't around back then, you probably guessed that. A little further later in history, we remember something else that happened, Uh, September 11. I was around then, I remember it, I was in year 12 at the time. And many of you will probably remember where you were when you first heard what was happening when planes were flying into the Twin Towers and such things. Shocking footage on TV and something that just crystallises in our mind. There's some events in history that we just seem to remember. Another one that I remember, but most of you guys probably won't remember, was this day, the 21st of May, 2011. Uh, I want to get good value out of our wedding photos... And so we're able to put them up again as well. Um, I think it's good marital advice to make sure this is a day that you remember whichever day that happens to be for you. But there's one day that happened a bit earlier on that I wasn't around for, but my parents tell me they remember it well. It was the 16th of August, 1977. And on that day, it had something to do with a king. You guys might remember it. The headline for that day was this The King is Dead. Of course, talking about Elvis, the king of not any country or any land, but the king of what they termed as rock and roll. So, Elvis didn't have any kingdom of this world, but interestingly, soon after he was buried, not long after that, there were sightings. People said, He's not really dead. Was he dead or was he just trying to disappear? Did he not like the fame and glory and, well, the money that came with that as well? He wanted to live a quiet life. Very interesting. But we'll be looking at another king and this is a king that also had no earthly kingdom, didn't rule over an earthly kingdom. In fact, he was much bigger than that. It was supposed that on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, 33 AD, a king... Jesus died. Three days after, people claim to see him alive. Walking, talking, eating, teaching, breathing. What's the difference? Why do we believe as Christians that Jesus is alive, but not necessarily believe in the real living Elvis? An interesting question. And as the... The death and the resurrection of Christ is so central to everything we believe, to Christian faith, let's discuss these things and let's pray and help us, uh, God's Spirit, to help us understand them and impart them into our lives. Uh, God, we thank you for your word. Uh, We pray that you would challenge us, that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to understand, and a willingness and lives to know you, and may it be for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you haven't got your Bibles open, 1 Corinthians 15 would be a really great place to open them because we'll be going through that passage and looking at some of these things regarding the evidence of the resurrection. And we'll break it up into asking a few different questions. The first question we're asking, and I think which is something that Paul leads us to ask, is, is what we believe important? It's an interesting question and I think there's different types of belief depends on what we're talking about. Is what we believe important? Well, if we're talking about the real living Elvis walking around as a 75-year-old, as some people might believe, it probably doesn't affect our lives all that much. Do we really care? We might like some of his songs and see how he's changed uh, the music scene, but the fact that Elvis is dead or alive doesn't really change our lives all that much. It shouldn't affect how we live. It's curious, but not important. If we looked at the world through postmodern eyes, we'd kind of come to some sort of conclusion that nothing really matters. There's no absolute truth. There's no absolute truth that should affect people, at least. There's no truth, no right and wrongs, no absolutes. I guess the only absolute is that there's no absolutes, which is an absolute in itself. It's interesting, I work at a university, I'm a lecturer at a university, and talk with students all the time about, well, varying things. I teach in an engineering faculty, but talk about ethics and things as well all the time. One of my students, who was an atheist, uh, was talking to me about ethics and engineering. And I pointed out to him that it's strange for you to talk about ethics and engineering or anything else, being an atheist, because... If you simply subscribe to a good to you via the zoo evolutionary model of how life came into existence, why should anything anyone does or anyone says matter in the least bit? You're the process of a whole lot of chance chemical reactions. It doesn't matter one little bit. I pointed out his ethics had no basis. How could he say something was morally right and wrong, good or bad, or ethically good or bad? He had no basis for doing so. And if you take God out of the equation, that's exactly where you left. So the question, is what we believe important? I think it's vitally important, and Paul answers this for us and says, yes, it's vitally important when we're talking about these matters of life and death, of Jesus and salvation. When it's applied to Jesus, let's turn to the passage and have a look. In chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, He tells, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you stand, in which you were saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. This gospel, this message, this belief, is what saves us. If it wasn't true, well, we've believed in vain. What does that mean? Means we've wasted our time. It wasn't any use to us. And it goes on even further. In verse 12. He says, if Christ has preached, now if Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, our preaching is vain and your faith is also vain. Some translations say empty or futile. Verse 18 then goes on to say, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, that's Paul's code for those that have died who are Christians, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, because there's no resurrection of the dead, and they believe something that wasn't true or was in vain. And so Paul's question, well, our question, is what we believe important? Paul answers it and says, yes, it's vitally important. Look at this. If it's not true, you're wasting your time. All churches may as well shut down because there's no value in it. If it's not true is very different, though, if it is true. Paul assumes his faith as a basis, but the faith isn't just faith. Faith has to have, faith has to have content in something. In fact, if, if we separate faith from content, as in, I just have faith, but it's not in something, it's kind of meaningless. If we look at the Greek word for faith, the Greek word is pistos. It refers to a trust or belief or conviction in a particular truth. You can't have a trust, a belief or conviction in nothing. It has to be centred on something. So is what we believe important? Yes, it's vitally important. Without it, without content, faith is completely meaningless. And empty faith doesn't save people. It's empty and it's useless. Our next question was, What is our faith in? Well, I think this passage clearly outlines what our faith should be in. But I think before we get to that, there's very diverse ways that people exercise faith. Remember that was our definition before putting our trust or belief or conviction in something. All sorts of things people put their faith in. One trivial example that I remember was my nineteen eighty two Ford Laser. It was a trusty car until on the day when I was driving to one of my exams, the engine blew up. I lost faith in my Ford Laser very quickly then. And fortunately, someone was able to pick me up and the exam went well, but there's all sorts of things we can put our faith in and sometimes it may not be justified completely. And people develop all sorts of belief systems about how they should put their faith in or choose what they want to believe. Some people choose what they want to believe by their feelings. If it feels right, well, maybe that should be right then. The problem is lots of things that are really terrible probably feel right at the time. It's probably one of the reasons why we sin. It feels right. It feels good. It feels good to get our own way, not God's way. And so I'd suggest that putting our faith in basically what our feelings are telling us is something that's fraught with danger. What about following the mob, following the trends, following the fads, following the leader? Well, that can be all well and good. It just depends on what the leader or what everyone else is following. Our mob mentality, or if we just follow what everyone else is thinking and let them choose and dictate what we believe, that will change. It's a shifting sand that changes from time to time. We might think of certain cyclists who were amazing in our eyes, because everyone else thought they were amazing and when we find out they were taking drugs or accused of taking drugs, uh, we might think they're a whole lot less amazing. We're just following the mob and looking what everyone else is saying. Or certain golfers or sports stars that seem to be amazing in our eyes until we find out the long list of sorted affairs in their personal lives and our personal opinion of them drops several rungs. It can be a bit dangerous if we just choose the following the mob mentality of choosing what our belief system is going to be all about, who we put our trust in and what we're going to believe. What about science? That's a common one these days. My PhD is in engineering, so I've done a fair bit of science in my time. What if we adopted a strategy, our belief system saying, unless we can test something and prove that it's true, we're not going to believe it well, that can be fraught with danger as well. If we developed this sort of system, we'd probably take a very high opinion of ourselves that we have unlimited knowledge and unlimited potential to find out this knowledge through scientific endeavours. The problem is we don't. We have to keep rewriting science textbooks because we find errors in them, and we find errors in our understanding. When we talk about science, we're specifically discluding miracles because they're not part of the natural structure of things we can explain with the laws of physics. They exclude God. Science excludes God by by nature of the way the discoveries are made. Further, there's lots of things in science that you can't prove. For example, you can't prove something like love. You don't find a new boyfriend or girlfriend and say, I'll do some scientific experiments to tell if they love me or not. I think there's much better ways to do so. You can't prove things like mathematical and logical proofs. Science actually presupposes logic and maths. And so if we were to try and prove logic and maths using science, it would be a completely circular argument. We can't prove ethical proofs or, thing or statements of ethical value or aesthetic value. We can't prove, for example, that the things that the Nazi scientists were doing, their experiments on people were good or bad using science. Most people would argue that they're bad. Science doesn't let us decide whether they're good or bad, though. We can't base everything that we believe on science, and I think there's many things that we actually believe that we're completely sure of that we can't design a scientific experiment to prove. So how do we believe what we believe? How do we choose what to believe? Well, rather than going with... Whatever we feel, or what everyone else is doing, or even whatever we can test in a test tube, how about we base it on what we find to be true? We investigate it, we test it, we look at all the witnesses and work out what's true or not. In the passage here, Paul appeals to some very clear facts of the gospel, specifically regarding the resurrection. It's been suggested that some of the early verses in this passage, uh, verse 3 and 4, are probably from an early Christian creed that people were saying to help them remember uh, the things that Jesus had done and the way they shared it with each other. Listen to some of these. For I delivered to you first of all, which I also received, suggested that was probably some sort of a creed or something that people were able to pass on to each other very easily that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. It was seen by Cyphus and then the Twelve. And he continues on talking about the 500 people that were also witnesses, and then talking about the apostles, and then himself as well in there too. This truth is the central truth of Christian faith. Without the cross, without what Jesus has done on the cross, specifically his death and then rising again three days later, the whole Christian faith completely crumbles away. If it's not true, we're wasting our time. And there's many sceptics that have noticed this. Rather than going for some of the periphery matters, they've said, well, why don't we try and attack the central thing of the Christian faith? I've read a number of their books. One of them, Sam Harris, Led to a Christian Nation, specifically states in his book that he wants to undermine faith of all kinds, shapes and forms. Another one, The God Delusion, where Richard Dawkins essentially says, I want Christians that read this book to be atheists by the end of it. Now, I own a couple of these books. They're in the uh, REC edition. That's the Robert Critiqued Edition. Um... And some of these books have actually strengthened my faith quite a bit because you read it and see the ridiculous arguments that atheists have come up with to try and disprove things like the resurrection. And you see, put that aside, the proof from what God says in the Bible and the external proof as well and see that there's very little credence in these sort of things. Before we get into some of those things, the effect of these books is interesting. In 2008, for example... It was someone that was from a, young Christ, from a Christian family, a teenager, that picked up uh, the God Delusion from Richard Dawkins and read it through, and at the end, uh, unquestioningly, he believed it. He asked a few people in his church, and they couldn't really answer some of the objections in there for him very well. And he took his father's hunting rifle and blew his brains out. He figured, well, there's nothing worth living for. There's no reason to live. I'll just end my own life. In 2010, two girls, once again, read uh, The God's Illusion and went onto a shooting range and had a pact to shoot each other because life wasn't worth living if there was no meaning in it. Interesting the, the change that a book like this, taking away faith in Christ, can do to people. But let's look at these, some of these arguments for the central things about the Christian faith. Essentially, the arguments that atheists have come up with to get around the death and the resurrection of Christ fall into one of four main categories. Firstly, they suggest that the whole thing was a complete hoax. There wasn't even a Jesus, let alone a cross, a death, a resurrection and things like that. Another one they come up with is the swoon theory that Jesus was somehow drugged. He was slipped some sort of a drug. It sent him into a coma for three days. He never really died, so he didn't have to rise again because he wasn't dead. And then he came out of the tomb. The saloon theory. Next one is the hoax theory, or also known as the twin theory. The disciples uh, made up the whole thing. They stole the body, or even that Jesus had a twin brother that no one seemed to know about, and they slipped him in instead of Jesus. And then they walked around claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead. The hoax theory. And the final one is the hallucination theory. That all these people had hallucinations. They so wanted Jesus to be alive that they saw him as alive. He wasn't really alive. It was just something that they saw. Something they imagined. Well, let's have a look at tackling a few of these objections to Christian faith. With respect to the one about the whole thing was made up, that this whole historical figure of Jesus was completely made up, well I don't think there's a single professor of ancient history in any reputable university in the world that would subscribe to a notion like this. In fact, people have tried to find one, and they can't find one. Um, We see records, historical records not just in the Gospels about Jesus, his life and death and resurrection, but in sources from 1st and 2nd century literature as well, from people like Pliny the Younger, and from even the Roman historian, the eminent Roman historian, Uh, Tactus, he makes reference to Jesus' death on the cross. It seems strange that Jesus has found his way into so many, not just Christian books, but also non-Christian books, uh, Tactus, Josephus and others, that for someone that's made up, he seems to have an awful lot of proof pointing towards his existence. That's why people that study the evidence, ancient history professors, would dismiss an argument like this outright. What about the other things, though? The drug theory or the swoon theory, that Jesus was never really dead. Well, let's remind ourselves who actually killed Jesus. It wasn't someone that hadn't killed anyone before. The Roman soldiers were professionals, professional executioners. In fact, they had very severe punishments if they let prisoners go or let prisoners not die that were meant to die. It seems pretty unusual that professional executioners that have seen people die over and over and over again and had a large say in how that happened would mistake Jesus and mistake Jesus for not being dead, for being, well, almost dead or seeming to be dead, but not dead. They made well sure of this. The trauma that Jesus encountered as well Think of the things that he went through, the whippings, the floggings, the beatings on the cross itself, the spear in his side. All these things are are massive, are are so traumas to the body that even if he he didn't die right away on the cross, he wasn't likely to make any sort of recovery from it. Josephus records uh, early first century Jewish historian records uh, two of his friends that were crucified and he managed to Uh, petition the authorities and have them taken off the cross before they died. They were given the best of medical care. They were taken off very early. One of them still died and the other one was a cripple for the rest of his life. And yet Jesus goes full term on the cross and then has a spear thrown through his side and people suggest that he's just sleeping in some sort of a coma that he comes out of after three days. And then three days later does this road to Emmaus walk, seven miles of it all, And doesn't seem to need a wheelchair or a walking frame to get along there. He's walking along and people don't notice anything wrong with him. Why would people like those disciples from Emmaus otherwise die for a dilapidated Jesus? One that was not drugged, but one that was so sick and frail that he couldn't really walk himself. It just didn't happen. And let's look at the transformation of those disciples. The transformation of the disciples was one of, from being timid like mice, to martyrs, to brave martyrs. From what we can determine from church history, it seems that all the disciples, bar one, that being John, were martyred for what they believed, and John was exiled on the island of Patmos. So it seems strange that disciples who wanted to make up this new religion claiming that this dead guy, Jesus, had risen from the dead, would go to their death believing it, would go to not just their death, but a torturer's death, whether it be crucifixion themselves, whether it be having spears run through them, like some are suggested, whether it be being tied to wild beasts and being ripped apart. That's not something that people would do for an April Fool's Day prank. It's not something that people would do for something that they just made up it's pretty clear that these disciples really believed it and were transformed. It must have been something big, something amazing, something incredible, like Jesus rising from the dead, that would transform these people. So was it a hoax? I think not. Another thing that would rule out a hallucination would be there's a whole lot more people that would hallucinate than what you first think. So in this passage it talks about it talks about Cyphers, then the 12, then 500 brethren at once, the greater part who are still alive so you could interrogate them if you wanted to. James the Apostles and then Paul later on. all these people would have to have this same hallucination over a period of 40 days which is unheard of in medical history. But then we've got this empty tomb and it wasn't just disciples that were talking about this empty tomb. it was the soldiers that were talking about this empty tomb, they need to explain it somehow. While they were on guard, a dead body managed to get away from them. That's not something that's good for their key performance indicators. The other people that need to explain this empty tomb are the chief priests and the rulers of the day. If there were any chance that the body of Jesus was still around, don't you think they would have gone through every house in Jerusalem to try and find it? to uproot this new religion that was displacing them? Don't you think they would have tracked it down and found it with the resources they had? They need to explain it, and the way they explained it was they claimed the disciples stole it. Don't you think their first move would be to arrest every one of the disciples if they really believe that and track down and find this body of Jesus? What do the history records say? didn't happen. They They needed to have hallucinated and believe that Jesus had risen from the dead, along with the soldiers, along with all the disciples, over this massive period of time. And we see the witnesses in this period of time doing all sorts of things with Jesus, walking with Jesus, eating with Jesus, drinking with Jesus, Jesus cooking fish on the beach. It's not as if he was just some sort of a ghost or an apparition or something that appeared before them. He appeared before them and deliberately did so to appear as a real person risen from the dead. So, what's our logical conclusion then? I think the only logical conclusion, the fair logical conclusion, when we weigh up the evidence, is to say that yes, Jesus did rise from the dead. He is alive again. Now, we're talking at the start about Elvis and people believing Elvis rising from the dead. And so, what I've done is dug up a couple of eyewitness accounts of people that believe they've seen Elvis. Let's look at a few of these. One of them says, "We saw Elvis at a fish and chip shop serving cod and mushy peas." I guess he didn't like the life of fame and went to fish and chips instead. What about this one? "Although uh, many have scoffed at my tale, I swear I saw Elvis Presley while I was fishing in f- uh, on the Sam- Salmon River in Idaho." The king looked older, obviously. I could tell it was him. He was walking away from the river, disappeared into the bushes. I swear at that moment, Heartbreak Hotel started playing on my radio. The experience was scary. Almost one like the the feeling one gets from surviving an automobile accident. It was scary but exhilarating. Are you compelled yet to believe in the risen Elvis? The live Elvis that never died? Probably not. I don't think these things would hold up in the court of law very well just like they haven't compelled you to believe that Elvis is alive. But compare that to the sort of evidence that we had for Jesus. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people seeing him for many days, an empty tomb, these disciples that turned from mice into martyrs. The evidence there is a whole lot more compelling. So what's the content of our faith? The content of our faith is a real historical earth-shattering event. An amazing event that we don't see every day. God's Son, Jesus, who's God himself, coming to earth, dying and rising again. So I guess that leaves us with another question. What do we do with it? How do we apply real faith, this faith in Christ? I'd suggest that real faith is something that needs to be lived and shared. A few chapters earlier on in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, the one he worships, the one that's risen. Now, if you were an imitator of Elvis, for example, you might become an Elvis impersonator. You might go on a pilgrimage to Graceland and find his gravesite, oh, sorry, his fake gravesite where he's not really buried, if you believe that. But what about faith in a risen Jesus? Well, the resurrection is something that we can believe as a historical event, something that really happened and something that's the central point of our faith, the central point of what we call the gospel. The gospel is essentially a series of truths, four truths, that tell us what God's done with this world. It starts with God. We can represent him with a crown, as the king. Because he's the king, the creator, the judge, the ruler. He's perfect and he's the one that made everything that's seen. We then have man. Man's part of his creation. But rather than honouring God as God, as the king, as the creator, as the Lord, they rebelled against him. The way they rebelled against him is they disobeyed his commandments. Essentially they committed what we call treason. They said, we don't want you to be king. We want to rule our own lives, live our way without you. Now, remember we said God's a just God as well. Well, the punishment for treason is pretty pretty serious. Punishment for treason, punishment for sin, the Bible tells us, is death. That's bad news. We don't tend to like bad news, but that's terrible news. But then, we've been talking about Jesus. He brought good news to us. The good news about Jesus is that he came to this world. He lived a perfect life. He then died. That was our doing as well, by the way. He rose again and took the punishment for all the wrong things we've done. That's good news that he took the punishment for all the wrong things we've done. Since he took the punishment for all the wrong things we've done, he leaves us with a decision to make. Do we take the punishment for all the wrong things we've done or do we let him do so? And that's the thing he's asked us to let him do. Now, about here, people might uh, bring up an objection. You talk about this loving God. How could he punish people? How could he send people to hell? My answer to an objection like that would be how could an unloving God send his son to die for people who hated him, who people, for people who are committing treason against him? That's a loving God that does that. That's a loving God that puts a substitute out. That's a loving God that makes a way for you to spend eternity with him. So we talk about applying real faith. Throughout, throughout the Gospels, throughout this passage, throughout Paul's writings, he talks about believing, he talks about preaching, he talks about witnessing, and he talks about real faith, putting your trust in God. In James, he talks about James talks about real faith when you're praying, praying as if God is really listening and believing that he'll answer. The great commission tells us that we need to tell other people about this good news. We need to share this faith with others. Tell people about this gospel. Jesus gave us a great commission. It was one of the last things he said before he ascended back into heaven. And so if you're a believer in Jesus, if you put your faith in Jesus, that he died and rose again, and he's taken the punishment for all the wrong that you've done, we well, rejoice in real faith. That's something that's huge. Something that's amazing. Something that's incredible. Something that's life-changing. Something that should be earth-shattering. Is it earth-shattering for you? If you're not a believer in Jesus, if you don't believe that he rose from the dead, if you don't believe maybe he was even a real person, why not? It's a serious question. Come up and tell me after. I'd love to know. we would love to have a chat about it. Why not believe in Christ? And if you believe in him, why not surrender your life to him? Based on the amazing thing that he's done. Real faith that's important is not focused on becoming more like a living Elvis, it's focused on becoming more like a risen Jesus, one that's conquered death and one that's died in our place. So we should live it out and share it with others. Let's pray.